0: You may you may still be in the in the Christmas mindset. You may have already switched over to the new year. And if you're thinking about the new year, I want to ask you something. What would it be like if you could get just a couple glimpses of the big, important things that are going to happen in 2010 or beyond? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to know every little detail of what's coming up in my life. It would be boring, right? It's like someone giving away the ending. Of a movie or of a book, but I do, it would be nice to know the big things that are coming ahead. I mean, wouldn't it have been nice to know that the U.S. economy was going to collapse in the fall of 2008? Uh, you might not have uh, bought that vacation home. Or wouldn't it have been nice to know that uh, a terrorist was going to strike the Detroit airport on Christmas Day? You might have chosen to drive instead of fly to see your family. We do, we want to know what's coming ahead. You know, the, the big things, the big events. And God is not in the fortune-telling business. But he has, throughout his word, made it clear to his people certain things that were going to take place in the future. It's called predictive prophecy. When you think of the prophets, you shouldn't always think of them as just you know these soothsayers with their eyes rolled back in their heads. Because they weren't possessed. They weren't people who had channeled some strange spirit. They were just speaking for God. And sometimes God wanted them to preach against sin that was happening right then. And sometimes he wanted them to predict things that God was going to bring about in the future. And I want to read uh, one of those most famous prophecies. It was actually fulfilled on the first Christmas. It's from Micah 5. Micah 5, one Verses 1 through 5. You can turn there if you'd like. That's what we'll be spending the rest of our time today. And I'll read those verses. The prophet Micah says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, although you are small among the clans of Judah... "...out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will live securely... For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. If it was not for um, the Gospels telling you that this was speaking about Jesus, it might have slipped your mind. If you were just reading this passage, you might not know it was talking about Jesus right off the top of your head. But that is indeed the subject of this predictive prophecy. Let me give you a little bit of the historical background of that, because this is one of the most amazing prophecies that was ever fulfilled in the New Testament through Jesus. Micah preached to both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel during the eighth century. Both nations at that point had gotten heavily engaged in idolatry. They were very uh they, they practiced injustice towards the poor, towards the weak, uh, the people who should have been the leaders, the judges the priests, even most of the kings were blinded by sin and they led the people down a path and it wasn't like the people didn't want to be led. They loved it, down a path of sin and idolatry and injustice and they had completely ignored and forgotten about God. And God used Micah and some other prophets of that time, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, who you probably are more familiar with. Isaiah and Micah prophesied at the same time. In fact, many people have called Micah Isaiah in shorthand because he mentions many of the same things that Isaiah does. And God used these prophets to warn the people of both Israel and Judah that God was going to punish them if they did not repent. And Israel was indeed taken into captivity by Assyria in 722 B.C. That was actually right in the middle of when Micah was preaching. And so the people of Judah... They saw their northern neighbors be taken captive. And they knew that this Assyrian army was huge and infamously cruel. And they had every reason to fear as that Assyrian army started its march down into Judah. And you may know the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib and how God slew over 100,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night to protect his nation, or uh, protect the nation of Judah, and particularly the city of Jerusalem. But it was in this time period that Micah preached his sermons. A lot of national corruption, sin, injustice. And this message, this particular message of these five verses in Micah 5, it is famous for predicting the actual birthplace of the Messiah. The actual little tiny town, insignificant town as we'll see, where Jesus came into this world. And it wasn't the grand entrance that many may have expected. And it certainly was an awfully difficult time to be predicting about something 700 years in the future. It didn't seem like that would really help the people who were standing behind the, the walls of Jerusalem with all the Assyrian soldiers outside. It didn't really seem like this was something that would help them that much considering it was going to happen 700 years in the future. And actually, as we'll see, a lot of the prophecy would happen hasn't happened yet. So 2,700 years and counting, didn't help those people much. But it does go to, it goes to show that God's plans are always better than our plans. And that's what we want to look at today through Micah's prophecy, through this little sermonette that he gave, that God's plans are always better than our plans. And there's two main points if you want to take notes or just keep it in mind but the things that show me in this passage that God's plans are always better than our plans is that God uses insignificant things to carry out His purposes. He uses insignificant things. The things that don't draw attention to themselves. Things that wouldn't jump out to you or to me. And the really, the big thing that you see in the first couple of verses here was that Christ's earthly beginning was very humble. His earthly beginning was very humble because the writer goes out of his way to say, Bethlehem, you are small. It's a comparative. You are, compared to all the rest of Judah, you are dinky. You are a backwater village. Ain't got nothing going on there. I'm not going to pick on Lena's hometown. Okay, I will a little bit. Uh, you know, Wapakoneta is where Neil Armstrong was born. It's a pretty good-sized town. I mean, you know, 10,000 people maybe. Not that bad, but they have a Walmart and they have... Uh, a Sam's no they don't have a Sam's where well, they have a Walmart and okay they have a Walmart you know and they have a few restaurants but there's a little teeny town that's actually closer to where Lena's parents live called Buckland and it makes me laugh whenever I drive through there I think the census said there's 200 people there they used to have a restaurant not anymore have they ever had a gas station do they still have one no they don't have a gas station anymore either no stoplight Literally, this town, if you blink, you will miss it. It is so tiny. And it's, it's like one street with a few houses lined along. There's no business. People, you know, they farm or they go to Wapakoneta or Lima or some other area of, of Ohio for their job. But there's nothing going on in Buckland. And in some ways, that was what Bethlehem was like. And not only Bethlehem, but you've got to think even before... We tend to think of, we say the virgin birth. The virgin birth, the virgin birth. Was it a virgin birth? Absolutely. But what was really miraculous about that? It was a virgin conception, wasn't it? That was what was unique. But the birth itself, I'm sure Mary went through the same labor and pain and mental and spiritual anxiety that every woman goes through on her when she brings a child into the world, especially her first it wasn't like Mary's birth, she just breathed a sigh and all of a sudden Jesus was there wrapped in swaddling cloth. The Bible says she had to wrap him in swaddling cloth. She delivered her baby in the muck and mire of a manger. It was a very normal birth. And not only that, it was, it was not only normal, it was less than normal. Because a manger, a barn, that was the type of place where slaves and prostitutes would have had their babies. Certainly not the, the king of glory. So don't lose sight of the fact that, yes, we, we've romanticized, oh, oh, holy night, oh, star above. It's become romantic to us because of the shepherds. But that was a normal birth, and in some ways, a very humble birth that Jesus came into. And again, like I said, that town was just a normal, rinky-dink town. There wasn't anything special about that town except for one thing. Who knows what was the one special thing about Bethlehem? Who else was born there? David. Right. It's the city of David because that's where David was born. But what city do we associate with David? Where did he set up his kingdom? Jerusalem. So, in this passage, I really see an interesting contrast. Here's Jerusalem, which has hundreds of thousands of soldiers surrounding it. They don't know how long they can hold out. They're humiliated, which we'll see later. But they're the great city. They're the city, the center of worship, the center of government. God could have chosen to bring about the Messiah through Jerusalem. That would have seemed more natural, right? But instead, that's not what he did. He said, starting 700 years ago with this prophecy of Micah, he said, I'm going to bring about my son, the Son of Man, the Son of God, I'm going to bring him into this earth in a manger in backwater Bethlehem. And the connecting point was that it was also where David had been born. And I challenge you, we're not going to take the time to do it today, but as you read through God's Word, especially the Old Testament, as you read about Jesus Christ, note how often he's tied to David. And I'll draw a quick comparison for you if it'll help. Romans calls Jesus the last Adam. You know, he he does what Adam did. He does the opposite. Adam plunged the whole race of mankind into sin. And Jesus, Romans makes very clear, just as the one plunged people into sin, so the one will make many righteous. And Jesus' sacrifice applies to all mankind just like Adam's sin applied to all mankind. And there's also a sense in which Jesus is the new David. King David, he was a great king, wasn't he? He did a lot of things right. He was a man after God's own heart. And God promised him in 2 Samuel 7 a line that would continue forever. Someone will always be the, the ruler, the ultimate ruler, which would be Jesus, would come from your line, David, a terrific privilege. But we also think of David's many failures, his mistakes with Bathsheba and Uriah and numbering the people and how his family fell apart. He was a good ruler but he was not a perfect ruler. And the point that I want you to see, Bethlehem is small. Nothing special about it. Nothing special about the birth of a little baby in a barn. But God can use insignificant things, and he often does, to accomplish his terrific purposes. One writer said, this shows that Israel's future greatness does not depend on a human king, but on divine intervention to bring something out of nothing. And I would remark that both David and the Messiah had such an inauspicious beginning in this little tiny town of Bethlehem that it proved that only God could have brought them out of that and made them have the great success that they did have. But not only was Christ's beginning very humble, that's not unfamiliar to you, but look a little bit later in this, that Christ's earthly end will be glorious. The verses that describe uh, you will be a ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah was making very clear this was not an ordinary human ruler. You uh, You could translate that are from old, from ancient times, not just from ancient, but from the time before time, from the most distant time, from before anybody ever started keeping track of history, This ruler had his beginning then. He's always been. Micah was making it clear that this was not a human ruler. And it's interesting to note that this humble beginning turned into such a glorious end. And we have to understand, it's not that Jesus' earthly ministry was so glorious. Because the descriptions here, in verse 3, it says, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives forth... And the rest of his brothers returned to join the Israelites, and then later on it says, in verse four, they will live securely, for then his—that's the Messiah's—greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. If you know a little bit of your history, you realize that the Israelite, that the nation of Israel, has not had a real successful history up until the twentieth century, even at least. They've always had somebody oppressing them. And from the time that Micah wrote this prophecy, when it was the Assyrians, then it would become the Babylonians, then it would become the Greeks, then it would become the Romans at the time of Jesus. And these verses about how glorious Israel will be restored, and Jesus will rule over them, and everything will be wonderful, it's not talking about when Jesus first came to earth at Christmas, what we call the first advent of Christ. It's talking about when he comes in the future, in the millennium, to reign. And we'll see some of that. The first thing is that he will assemble Israel as a unified nation. When Rome besieged Jerusalem in AD 70, long after Jesus had gone back to be with the Lord, Rome knocked down... Remember, uh, Jesus prophesied about that himself. He said, not one stone will be left on top of each other. He knocked it all down and said, this is what's going to happen. The nation of Israel is going to be scattered. And that is what they did. When their nation was finally destroyed by Rome... Israelites, Jews, scattered all over the known world. And now they came to America, and there are Jews in America here. There are Jews in Russia. There are Jews in Europe. There are Jews all over the world. Because primarily they scattered at that point in AD 70. So the Lord is saying at some time, verse 3b, when he says the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites, at that future day, the Lord Jesus is going to Gather in his people, Israel, from all across the globe. He's going to gather them in. And the Lord was using this to encourage Israelites to say, yes, things are going to get bad. You're going to be scattered. But the Lord is still in control. And not only would he reassemble Israel, but he would spiritually renew them. The first phrase of verse 5 says, and he will be their peace. If you're taking notes, jot down Jeremiah 31. In Ezekiel 36, those are passages which also describe how God someday will put a new heart into the Israelites. I don't know if you knew this. It's not something that really solidified for me until the, until I got into seminary, really. When you look and you see the children of Israel going through the wilderness, when you see the children of Israel uh, installing David or Solomon as their king, when the, the waters closed down on the Egyptians, all these great high points of Israelite history that we read about in the Old Testament, you have to understand that not all of those Israelites were true believers. You're not going to see the entire nation of Israel in heaven someday, those who lived back then. The Lord talks about that. He talks about how they didn't have a true heart. They didn't have a heart for him. They went through the motions... But you know the story of how eventually they started serving idols, which is what had happened in Micah. So I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that Israel needs to be saved. Jews today and Jews then, they needed to put their faith in God just like you and I have. It is by faith that we have a relationship with God. And that is what has been lacking from so many Jews, so many Israelites, they they looked to their national heritage. They said, Oh, I'm part of this line. I'm I'm part of this people of God. But they were not really the people of God unless they took their faith, their complete faith in God. And that is what the Messiah will do someday. It says he will be their peace. He doesn't want them just to be blood relatives, he wants them to be spiritual family as well. And look at this or listen to this uh if you just want in Ephesians two, verses eleven through fourteen. Paul says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That's Paul describing you and me. People who did not know God were not Jews, had no hope outside of God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He himself is our peace. It appears to be that Paul is referring back to this passage in Micah, He will be their peace. One of the greatest mistakes of all Israel's history has been that they wanted peace from their enemies. They wanted peace from the foreign invaders. They wanted peace from the rebels. They wanted peace from all the military problems that they had. Lord, give us peace. Give us victory. And God has always had as his top priority that they would have, individuals would have peace with him. And they would be reconciled through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice. So the Jews needed to be reassembled, which the Messiah would do. But they also needed to have a new heart put inside them. They needed to be born again. Just like you and I needed to be born again. But also, the Messiah would lead and protect his people. Some of those beautiful verses that I know of, in Micah at least, if not the entire Old Testament, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. As we mentioned that before. Look at those just those phrases. Stand and shepherd. Jesus is not someone who can be shaken. He's not someone who can be bought out. He's not someone who's going to sacrifice your interests for his own best interests. He is someone who stands and is firm and you can count on him. And this idea of shepherding, it's not quite just gently guiding your flock. It's actually going on the offensive because you see a couple verses further down outside of our passage. When the Assyrian invades our land, we will raise against him seven shepherds And they will rule the land of Assyria with the sword. This sense of shepherding has the idea of guarding. Jesus is the one who stands and guards his people. There is nothing that happens in your life or in my life that occurs except that the Lord Jesus, who oversees us, who takes care of his people, allows it to happen. And there is so much worse. The bad things that happen in your life, they could be so much worse, but the Lord shows us mercy and protects us over and over again. Jesus is a full member of the Trinity. And when it says, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, remember what Jesus said when Pastor went through John. He said, I don't do anything unless it's from the Father. Unless I'm relying on the Father's power, unless he tells me to do it, I don't do anything on my own. I'm not a maverick. Jesus Christ was ultimately dependent on the power and authority of God his father. And it wasn't because he was weaker or less or had to be plugged into some magical outlet. Jesus Christ was fully God. But as we saw, he humbled himself to come in a normal birth in a backwater town, but God has said in the millennium, in the future, he will be very glorious. And the last uh, the last couple of phrases, the people will live securely for his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. God is the omnipotent creator. Everything that happens on earth is under his control. And in that thousand year reign, there is not the remotest chance that one of Israel's enemies will rise up and threaten her. There is not the remotest chance that they have a, a an opportunity to stage a rebellion. That thousand years is going to be one of complete peace and security. And you and I look forward to that as well because God has promised that we are the people of God, as those verses I read in Ephesians 2. And you and I can look forward to that day of peace and security when Jesus rules from Jerusalem. And it will be wonderful, and I hope that thrills your heart. It may seem a long ways away, but friends, it could be as soon as seven years from now. Because we know that Jesus could return at any minute to rapture his people, then there will be seven years of tribulation, and then the millennium will start, and Jesus will come back to rule on earth and you and I will be exalted. We will be able to serve him and worship him perfectly. It may almost uh, blow the circuits in your mind to think that the little tiny newborn baby wrapped in swaddling cloths would grow up not just to give his life on the cross, although that was the single most important act that has ever happened in our history, but also that that little tiny baby would come back and, as Revelation said, come back with hair as white as snow and feet that are burnished like bronze, just shining, gleaming, with a sword coming out of his mouth. And that wonderful, glorious, exalted, risen Savior, Jesus, will rule over the nations. He will inherit the throne of David and will rule the entire world. And that is what is due him. Does he not owe that for all that he did, all that he suffered at the hands of mankind? Certainly, God has exalted him. But it goes to show that God's plan has never been to exalt man, never been to use the great and good things of mankind. He used a normal birth, a woman, Mary, who was nothing special, a little backwater town of Bethlehem. He uses the insignificant things in his own grace and wisdom and sovereignty. And friends, it does go to show as well that we can't look at our lives... Use our poor health or our bad family situation or our tight budget or the abuse in your childhood or anything as an excuse why we can't serve God or why God would never want to use somebody like me. I'm just I'm just not that good. You know, Zach, I appreciate what you're saying, but I'm never going to be that much of a Christian. <laughs> I mean, I, I try, but this this whole thing just seems a little bit too much for me. I don't think I'll ever amount to anything. I'm certainly never going to get up and preach. I'm never going to lead the singing. I'm just I'm just doing good if I'm here once in a while. Don't, don't, don't pressure me. I'm, I'm not that good of a person. God doesn't want me. No, friends, He does want you. He does want everything that you have. There's something unique about you. There are talents and abilities and ministries that you have that He can use in this church. That He can use to help other people. You may not think that, but it is true. God does use insignificant things, so it brings himself more glory. But not only that, God's plans are always better than our plans, not just because he uses the insignificant things, but because he uses uncomfortable times to teach his people. God uses very uncomfortable times. That is what was happening here. When Micah was preaching these messages, the people were peeking over the walls of the Assyrian army. When Micah was preaching these messages, people were being oppressed, and it was unjust, and it was intolerable to live there, especially if you were someone who still worshiped God. The idolatry, the bloodshed, the violence, it must have grated at your heart. And yet Micah says, friends, this is going to happen 700 years from now, and then who knows how many thousands of years after that. I hope that encourages you. You're not going to be around to see it, but... I hope that encourages you. And you may, as I wonder a little bit, how would I respond to that? How would I respond to a message that didn't seem to really apply to me, that didn't help me in the tough situations of my life right now? But God's plans are always better than our plans because he uses those uncomfortable situations to teach us, to help us grow. In the first place, humiliation makes us humbled. Humiliation makes us humble. And I see that in the very first verse. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. A key point that's not referring to, as I understand it, to Jesus. It's referring to the rulers of Israel and of Judah who shook their hand in the face of oncoming invaders and God humbled them and he knocked them down and he let someone like Sennacherib, he let someone like the kings of Babylon come in and wipe Israel, wipe Judah off the globe almost. Leave them hardly anything. Humiliation does humble us. Maybe you're thinking, great, it's it's still December 27th. Okay, Zach, I still have a little bit of Christmas glow. You're trying to take that away from you by saying it's good for me to be humiliated? It's only good if God does it. And there's nothing happens to us unless God does it. So yes, I am saying if there's something in your life that has dragged you down, a situation that just, you were mortified, you were humiliated, you were embarrassed, you had no strength or power or ability of your own to control the situation anymore. That was God. I can say that. If it happens in my life, it was God who did it. Because humiliation does make us humble. I wonder if uh, if the Israelites at some point, well, they had plenty of time to think. They were cooped up in Jerusalem. I wonder if they had time to think of what had brought them to that point. I wonder if they reflected on the sins of both their own sins and the sins of their leaders that had gotten them to the point where God was, in their mind, just about to judge them for all that. And I wonder if sometimes we need to look at our own hearts when we're humiliated. When we're cooped up and we can't go there's no way we can turn and nothing seems to be going right for us. Take a look. Take a look at your heart. Take a look at what's going on in your life that might be separating you from God. What you might have allowed to come in, the relationships you might have picked up, the people you're ignoring that you should be speaking with. The sins in your life that you let in. I'm as susceptible as you are, and when I'm not walking with the Lord, That's when I get humbled. That's when He drags us lower. It's part of His chastising of us as His children. Pride stands between us and a right relationship with the Lord. And sometimes when your life or my life is turned upside down, that's the only time we can see straight. Not only does being humiliated make us humble, as the Israelites found out, but also being lonely or being alone makes us lonely. Being alone makes us lonely. Look at verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. Obviously, speaking of Mary giving birth to Messiah. Israel will be abandoned. The idea of the word is to deliver over. God actually went so far. He was so disgusted by the crimes of his people that he actually delivered them over. Hey, Babylon, come in here. I'm going to pave the way for you so you can... Teach my people a lesson. You can take them to captivity. Kill many of them. Because we have to take extreme measures to deal with extreme sin. Don't ever take God's chastising lightly. Because being alone, when you are out of your comfort zone, without your supports, it makes you uncomfortable. Think about going to a party where the only people you know are the hosts. there's 20, 30 other people you've never seen them before in your life. It's uncomfortable. You try to stay as close to the host as you can, but, you know, they've got to deal with other people, and they've got the food, and you end up sitting, you and your date, maybe, in a corner, and I don't really know anybody. Or what about the first day of a new job? Isn't that terrifying? Or meeting your in-laws, your potential in-laws, for the first time. Those are moments we all can relate to, the terrifying moments Moments when we are alone and out of our comfort zone and we just wish we were somewhere else. (laughs) Don't wriggle out of those situations too quickly, my friends. Don't wriggle out of the humiliating situations. Don't wriggle out of the ones that are uncomfortable, that make you lonely. God may have put you in that position not to abandon you permanently, but to let you see how fruitless how miserable a life is when it's lived apart from Him. And I'm guessing there are people right now who are listening to this and saying, you know what? I have been ignoring God. I have been not living my life to His standards. Or maybe I've been doing the right thing, but I haven't been showing love to other Christians. I haven't been giving my time. I haven't, I've let things come into my mind and heart, that don't honor and please the Lord. And I let bitterness or jealousy or pride. I don't mean to hit every single sin that could ever happen to you because the list could go on and on. But the point is, everybody needs to examine their hearts. And especially in a time of loneliness or humiliation, God takes that uncomfortable time and he teaches you, he shapes you, he forms you. It's not an unfamiliar analogy, but using shaping gold... And purifying it, that the Bible uses that many times about we go through fire to become more pure. I was designed to worship God together with other Christians, not to live life my own way, do things that just make me happy, make me rich. We're supposed to live life with other Christians and not be completely self-sufficient. Pride stands between us and a good relationship with God. This amazing prophecy is not just for Israel, although that was its primary audience. It's for you and I. Remember, Paul said, these things that are written before were written for our learning. So what can we learn from this? We need to learn that God uses the insignificant things to bring about His purposes. He uses uncomfortable situations to purify us. Not what we would prefer to go through But the Lord uses that to teach us great lessons, great spiritual lessons about himself. That's why his plans are always better than our plans. And the gospel, honestly, friends, it does not make sense to unbelievers. It's foolishness to them. So we can't expect the insignificant things to make sense to them. But hopefully, through the eyes of of Christians who have the Holy Spirit in our hearts that helps guide us and teach us what we need to know, we can look at a situation like Jesus being born in a manger and not just say, oh, how cute, Mary and Jesus and the donkeys and the shepherds. Oh, I just want to take a picture. It's so much more than that, isn't it? It's Jesus coming to someday die for your sins, to be slaughtered on a cross. It's Jesus coming again someday to redeem you, to pull his people Israel from all across the globe, to set up his kingdom and to rule in peace and security. It is so much more than that. And if you happen to this Christmas get caught up in maybe the materialism or maybe the cuteness of Christmas without understanding or reflecting on the true purpose, ask the Lord to help work in your heart in advance for next Christmas. Because Christmas is not just a holiday that we can feel good about. Although we do. It's a holiday that To remember and to praise God that his plan is always so much better than our plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you so much. We need to remember the important things. The important things where you teach us through the insignificant things that might escape our notice and the uncomfortable times that we just want to escape, period. Lord, we need to listen. We need to have our ears and eyes open. And like Israel, we need to pay attention and repent if there's something in our life that needs to be repented of. Oftentimes, Lord, there's no sin. It's just that you're putting us through a difficult time so we can trust you better. And your plans are always so much better than ours. And we thank you that you fulfilled this prophecy perfectly and that the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem. One more Um, verification that You are God and that You are in complete control of everything. We trust You with our lives, Lord. Give us a good new year. May we serve You and grow closer to You and not stray from Your heart this year. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.